Hello everyone and welcome to Synesthesia, a podcast about the creatives who shape the aesthetics of music. We chat to the artists behind the record sleeves, videos, photo shoots and stylings of the freshest new sounds, exploring how contemporary culture, fashion, illustration and design reflect and enhance the musical experience. Music has always been our passion and remains an integral part of our lives. That's why we decided to put together this podcast, which we called Synesthesia, because we perceive music not only with our ears, but also with our eyes. Synesthesia, the artist behind the artist. Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of Synesthesia. I am Enrico and I'm talking from De Beauvoir Town here in London. And today I have the privilege to interview Paul Nicholson, founder of the design studio number three, but most importantly, the artist who designed Aphex Twins logo. I don't think I need to add anything else as an introduction, so I will go straight to the greetings. Ciao, Paul. I'm really excited to have a legend like you as a guest. Welcome to Synesthesia. How are you? Very well, thank you. And hello to everyone listening. Where are you tuning in from? I'm, I'm based in Ealing, West London. Did you have a good Sunday? Yep, yeah. yeah. Um, I took my son to Kew Gardens, so uh, there was a, a Gruffalo trail. So we were walking around picking up cues about where uh, the Gruffalo was and found him. So yeah, that's uh, a Sunday when you've got a six-year-old. Sounds like a wonderful uh, fall Sunday in London. Kew Garden is one of my favorite places. Oh, it's beautiful today, blue skies and uh, clear air, so perfect. So I didn't give a proper introduction because uh, your work uh, speaks uh, for uh, itself. But still, uh, I would like to give a um, background to our audience of your aesthetic upbringing, of how you shaped your taste in visual arts. So can we go back to 1989, when you moved to London, and tell us your path from the very beginning? I, I was fortunate when I was starting university in that I had a pretty clear idea what I wanted to do and which area of design got me the most excited so I would say from about 86 so when I was about 16 I, I knew that I wanted to do uh, music graphics I know when looking back I think there were two record sleeves that really put me on this path primarily it would be Zig Zig Sputnik's Flaunted LP cover from 86 which featured a giant Japanese robot with lots of Japanese type. Um, that also, I, I think, was probably the starting point of my interest in Japanese graphics, especially at the pop end. So uh, anime, manga, Japanese pop music, what have you. Japanese pop culture at the time, late 80s, was your main source of inspiration. Yeah, so bear in mind at that time, you know, before the internet and before cable TV and all the multi-channels that we have now, there weren't very many opportunities to see anything from Japan. So it was a real uh, effort to trawl through comic book stores, trying to find anything really. Uh, at that point in time, you had a few publishers out of the States that would translate uh, anime and manga into English, but it was very few titles so a lot of the time I would simply buy things that were in Japanese and just buy them for the love of the artwork rather than being able to read the stories 
Do you remember the name of that comic bookshop where you will go and find these treasures, these gems? Well, it would be Forbidden Planet, which at the time was uh, just off Tottenham Court Road. And I, I remember specifically there was a box that would have old issues of magazines that had um, you know gotten damaged over the time on the shelves and I would just uh, snap things up for a pound or two that had been maybe three or four month old issues of new type or animage magazine. I think as well as uh, there was a little comic book shop in Kingston because I studied at Kingston upon Thames so I'd go there all the time pestering the guy that worked there for anything from Japan and would pretty much buy anything that they had because there was so little that you could get that was Japanese. I, I just would snap it up. It was round about this time that I discovered uh, Shiro Masamune, who created later uh, Ghost in the Shell. But in the late 80s, he did a comic book called Black Magic and Appleseed. So that was my introduction really to uh, Shiro Masamune and the, the wonderful mecha design that he creates in all of his comic books. So we discussed the manga and Japanese culture and we are, like you said, that was 1986 and you were a teenager. Then we move forward and we go to like 1987, 88, 1989 and the arrival of Acid House in, um, in London and you were just starting university in Kingston. So I am assuming that this was also a big influence for you. Acid and um, the rave scene um, followed a progression of having gotten into electronic music quite early. When I was about 13, you had bands like The Art of Noise, Cabaret Voltaire. So I'd gotten into electronic music in a big way. So would trawl through the industrial section. Uh, at the time, you had what was called Euro Body Beats, which was bands like, like Front 242, you have the industrial thing going on, so bands like Einstein, Barton, Skinny Puppy out of um, Canada. So from that, um, I remember when Washington Go-Go came out, which would be about 85, 86, then it was Chicago House, then it was Detroit Techno. So you had this kind of lineage of just um, being into electronic music. So by the time I came down to London, um, I was excited to be able to trawl through uh, various pirate radio stations and just listen to as much techno as uh, I could. Once the rave scene came along, it was just it, it was just natural for me to to go to those venues and and to dance to the music and just get into it because it. I'd been into it for so long anyway. Yes, I was interested in your um, skills as a dancer, as an underground dancer. Did you start dancing from an early age? I mean, you said that you were listening to the kind of music since you were 13. So have you been dancing since you were 13? You know, again, you need to put things into perspective. Uh, you know, I was brought up in the north of England and men didn't dance in the 80s. It was very much that culture of you would go to a nightclub and the girls would be on the dance floor dancing around the handbags and the guys would just be leering backs against the wall staring at the girls. It was very kind of conservative and set in its ways. 
So how about the post-punk mosh pit? I never really got into punk. So if um, I'm, I'm sure at Leeds Uni there would have been that kind of band. I think the closest I got to it is I saw the Godfathers around about 86 and they had a bit of a kind of post-punk following. So that was quite an aggressive night. But by and large, I, I would be going to, I went to Leeds Uni, I saw Front 242, I saw Big Audio Dynamite, LFO. I saw LFO in 87. Um, it was at um, ID Magazine, did a party at the Leeds Warehouse, 88 at the Leeds Warehouse party. Do you remember the feeling of that very first warehouse party? Was it the first time you were like dancing to that kind of music? Oh no, oh, no way before. I was brought up in a town called Harrogate and there was a guy called DJ Tim who went on to be one half of Utah Saints. And just by virtue of always pestering DJ Tim to play the music I wanted to hear. We, we kind of got to know each other. You see, the only way he would be able to play bands like Age of Chance or Big Audio Dynamite would be to put them on at the beginning of the night. So the only way I would get to dance to that music would be when the dance floor and the club was pretty much empty. So me, probably Andy and Tony, would, would get to the 11 Club at doors opening and we would have maybe 20, 30 minutes before most people turned up when the place was empty. Oh, and uh, Tim, yeah, Tim would play the, play the music we liked and we would just jump around. There was also a bar in Harriet called The Glue Pot, which had, um, at the time, which was like high tech, it was a video jukebox. So we would um, put the age of chance on. And again, nobody else in Harrogate had any interest in that music so it'd just be the three of us just dancing in this uh, pub so we can say that uh, you trained as a part-time raver in the north <laughs> of england in uh, 86 87 88 and then uh, in 1989 when you moved to london eventually you became a full-time raver yeah i i would say from 89 probably for a good 10 years, I would say on average, I was going out about twice a week. I think that would be fair to say, because if I went out, it wasn't to a pub or um, to a restaurant. If I was going out, it was to go to um, a club or to listen to music or to see a live act or a band. So it was invariably music orientated. On oh, no, It's just um, the first week in London, um, I joined uh, a society at Kingston Uni for electronic music. And I think within two or three days of moving to London, I went to see Nitsa Ebb at uh, Subterranea in Portobello. And um, because I was writing for the university magazine, I, I would just get uh, free tickets to go to see uh, gigs and just write little reviews about it. So. As I say, within a few days of being in London, I, I kind of threw myself into the thick of it and was at Subterranea to watch Nitsa Ebb. Sounds like a dream-like life, honestly. Uh, were you studying graphic design in Kingston at the time? Yes. And uh, were you classmates with Apex Twin? Because, I mean, everyone knows the story that you started dancing on stage with him. And that's uh, how you 
met, but is there anything we don't know? Well, it depends how much uh, people have uh, read from various other interviews. I mean, the, the story was kind of um, fortuitous in so much that I, I met uh, and started dating a girl from Cornwall and she'd been to the Baoji and had gotten to know Richard. So once she heard the type of music I was into, she basically says, oh, if you like this kind of stuff, you, you should meet my friend Richard. But at that point in time, when she explained what his name was, Aphex Twin, I'd already known of what he was doing, having heard the analog bubble bath on Kiss FM. So it wasn't as if it was, uh, I, I, I get got to meet him not knowing what he was doing. I was well aware of, of that track because it, did stand out at the time as, a, as a, a really great piece of music. It was uh, 1991, wasn't it? Yeah, she was called Jenny. I met Jenny at the Freshers' Ball. So that would have been, I'm guessing, September 91. So I probably would have met Richard around about October 91. So can you recall uh, your first uh, hangouts? I mean, did you guys get along uh, so well since the beginning? Um, I, I would say um, because our shared interests crossed over to a great deal and um, we had a similar sense of humour. So I, I think we did get on really well and we started going to knowledge I'd, I was already working for Knowledge when I met Richard because I, I'd entered a competition to design a logo for Knowledge, which was kind of at the time London's only techno club. And so they, they, they were using the logo I submitted. So I was going to Knowledge every Wednesday. And again, you know, um, if you went out to a mainstream club, you might have been lucky to have heard house music, but if you wanted to listen to something harder or darker, Knowledge at that point in time was the only venue that was playing those kind of tracks. You guys would go out clubbing together. Yeah. Having a lot so, of fun. And he was well, making his music already. He was already being played by some pirate radios, but also established radios. And uh, at some point he, come up, he comes up and asks you, do you want to design my logo? As we obviously got talking, you would obviously uh, talk about what you're doing. So as I explained, I was on the graphics course. He was interested to see what I was doing. Um, so I, I took sketchbooks along and ideas books, and I think he saw something that he liked the look of and basically said, create something around that shape. And that's uh, how it started. Yeah. I mean, when you think about most projects to design something, there's usually the first submission and then it comes back and there's tweaks and there's changes and there's suggestions. But with the Aphex Twin logo, I, I drew it once and that was it <laughs> and most importantly there was no brief from the client because usually here at synesthesia uh, during our show we ask uh, what was the brief from the artist did you have a brief from apex twin to design this logo no no i mean in in my workbooks i'd been working for an uh, a skateboard brand called anarchic adjustment and and their shtick at the time was the whole um alien thing if you look at a lot of graphics from the early 90s you'll see loads of references to aliens and little 
grey men with black eyes. Uh, I knew Charlie at Anarchic Adjustment and he'd asked me to create um, basically stuff that looked alien and yeah well it was all about kind of lettering and type forms and anything that just looked not of this world i mean that was really what was asked of me and richard seen that kind of connected to it i think he liked the the fact there was no sharp lines it was all very amorphic and soft smooth and yeah and i i i drew um the Aphex logo, which is a letter A. There's no hidden meaning, no kind of a sigil or occult kind of reference. It, it literally is just a letter A. I don't believe so. Let us uh, let us believe in uh, conspiracy theories about this logo. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I've heard hundreds over the years. Um, Illuminati, I, maybe I, you guys belong to the Illuminati. They, they wouldn't let us in. We're too poor. We're too poor. The Illuminati is just for the wealthy elite. <laughs> I know. That's why it's crazy, all these uh, theories about the logo. I think we, with um, the very nature of being a fan is that you, you invariably are looking for something deeper, that you as the, the fan, you are the ultimate fan because you've broken the code but uh, yeah un unfortunately there is no uh, darker deeper profound meaning there is a no matrix uh, to break uh, unfortunately even though one thing about the uh, apex twins uh, logo is that uh, i feel like uh, it's the only logo in electronic music which is uh, not merely a logo but a proper alter ego. Compared to other artists from the electronic music scene, so let's say producers and DJs, the fact that Aphex Twin has all, uh, always kept this kind of a secrecy around his persona and all his public appearances are really rare. If there is a new billboard, people see your logo. They don't see like the face all around the world. Now in Los Angeles on Sunset Boulevard, there is a, your logo with the art, artwork by Wilcore, but it's still a logo, it's an image. And if you think about the, the electronic music landscape, there is no artist uh, who has uh, uh, such an iconic uh, logo uh, as a way of representing themselves because you will see their pictures, a picture of their face. That's what I meant by it's not a logo, it's an alter ego. It's, I, I mean, what's great about how uh, a logo will evolve and how it will enter into the public domain is that there's a number of factors at play. Had I just created a bog standard logo, chances are it would still be the symbol that's associated to Aphex Twin, but it wouldn't kind of mean that much to people because it wouldn't be something that exemplifies or, or kind of reflects the, the music that people are passionate about. And th th there needs to be that relationship between the music and the logo if it's going to become iconic. Can you explain us, because synesthesia is all about finding this connection between the design and this music. Can you explain us where this connection dwells in the Apex Twin logo? I mean, it's very difficult to answer. I think whenever a designer has an investment, a serious investment into the thing that they're into, 
it's not so much a thought process or that there's a way about it. It, it, you just become that, that thing. So for me, it, it's, it's not like I could pinpoint a particular point in time or a particular influence, or I could reference a, another artist. It's just, it's the sum of everything that uh, I, I, I've kind of followed my experiences, the, the way that I go about creating artwork. Would you say that maybe your hand and your thought process was led subconsciously by the music you were listening and so it reflects in this sense in the final artwork? Yeah, definitely. I think without listening to the music, without understanding what the person's creating, yeah, you, I'm sure if you were just given a blank piece of paper and asked to make a shape, you could create something that would be a good logo. But it's always good to have knowledge of what person is creating, that the, yeah. the sound. You try, you try and find something that 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 works with uh, with that individual. I know when when I work with people, I'm not looking for I'm not looking for just creating a logo. It's uh, that would be kind of too easy. So a lot of the time, I, I'm I'm trying to find new ways of creating shapes, creating forms, and looking for uh, a way to communicate. You created this uh, logo in 1991, and the first time that the public saw it was in the cover of a Selected Ambient Works 8592. Uh -huh. uh, this was uh, in 1992, on November 9th, so soon we will celebrate the anniversary. That was uh, the logo in its um, simplest, primitive form, because if we skip two years, we go two years ahead, we see the cover, like the iconic cover of an iconic record. We're talking about uh, So 2, Selected Ambient Works, uh, Volume 2. And uh, I want to talk about this cover because, uh, as we discussed before when we were talking and our microphones were off, there are two things that we have in common with this album. The first one is that uh, uh, Synesthesia is recorded in London, in the Beauvoir town, very close to South Southgate Road, in the London neighborhood where these uh, album, the cover at least, was conceived. And the second thing is that Richard said about this album and the cover, so both visuals and sounds, that they were meant to reflect his experience of synesthesia and lucid dreams. So let's talk about this great, unforgettable cover of So Too. Around about uh, summer of 93, uh, Richard was working on the on the LP. So I, I was uh, hearing a lot of the work in progress. So he, he would constantly be playing me bits and pieces and snippets of stuff. Uh, so we had uh, plenty of time to talk over our ideas and, and, and kind of think about what could happen on the sleeve. And quite early on, I'd suggested to Richard, it would be really good that there was no written element to the artwork that it was all through graphics, all through shapes and what have you, rather than track A, one, you know. Yeah, pure, pure design, pure visuals. It became one based around mathematics, because what I thought would be a good idea would be to have a photograph, and the size of the photograph was 
directly referencing the length of the track. So the bigger the volume of the photograph, the longer the track. So what started out as a relatively simple idea obviously became overly complicated because I then realized that, well, if you've got something that's across three formats, which is LP, CD, and audio cassette, I had to make that maths work across each of those formats. So I had to measure the area of the gatefold 12-inch sleeve. So I had effectively 60 by 30 centimeters to play with. Then on the CD, the booklet was a, a six, square it's like a folded so piece of basically paper. you got a second degree in maths while working on this uh, sleeve oh, it, 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 the maths alone took three days because i had to like i say work out the volume for each of the formats um work out how much of that area i could dedicate to photographs and then <laughs> super long process and that was just the the back part of the cover because the front part it's different from other covers by Apex Twin. Well, the the cover is, um, I believe, if I remember rightly, it was a leather case. I think one of the cases that he would move his synthesizers around with, and he'd scratched the logo into the leather and around about that time richard's girlfriend at the time was called sam and she was taking photographs so all of the images that you see uh were taken by sam a lot of them in 184 southgate road so which is literally around the corner from where we are recording this uh, episode and that's such a like an interesting coincidence so so summer of 93 uh when a lot of those photographs would have been taken we were all living on southgate road interesting anecdote exactly the kind of stuff we are looking for i'm uh, i'm interested in discussing the typography of this uh, cover because it looks really fresh especially if you look at what designers uh, who work with musicians are doing uh, nowadays like 2020 uh, there is this um, trend of going back to this uh, uh, very kind of uh, sophisticated and uh, hand designed um, typography and and uh, this cover has aged uh, very, very well, looking at it in like uh, uh, almost 30 years after. Well, w- one thing I've never really been a fan of or particularly adept at is being necessarily on trend or following what's in fashion at any given point in time. So I, I tend to want to find ways of doing things that kind of don't sit in any pigeonhole you know it would be quite easy to just look at what's going on at any point in time and be very fashionable but you you can see that people who were like super fashionable one year a few years down the line have have disappeared because you get kind of typecast and get um kind of known for a particular way of working i mean whatever was going on in 1993 it didn't really affect the way that I approached the design per se. So you kind of 
ignore it all and and do your own thing but the beauty of it is is that by not following trends too religiously uh things do become a little bit more timeless in so much that if you did something that was really really on the money in in 93 by you know the late 90s it's just going to look kind of terrible that's such a great insight and i think i'm gonna use this as your quote for our carousel on instagram Uh, where we will share a mood board with all your inspiration, influences, your artworks. So go check out our page, Synesthesia Undercore Podcast on Instagram, because uh, on the day we release uh, the episode, you will find also all the visual references to Paul Nicholson's uh, work. And yes, I agree. When you don't follow trends, you tend to be um, timeless. And that's probably why this cover has aged so well. Uh, it's been great to talk about like uh, how you met Apex Twin, how you worked on his logo and the album cover and all your influences. But now we have to leave the 90s behind and move <laughs> to the 2020s. Uh, so now like we need to be contemporary because it's time for our column, Work on the Street. Word on the street. For this column, Paul, we ask you to talk to us about a current uh, cultural slash uh, music scene which you find particularly fascinating. Uh, so you can mention a specific visual artist or musician that you find particularly inspiring nowadays. It's, it's, um, that's a tricky one. I, I tend to... Um, trawl through things like Tumblr and Instagram and constantly find things that I'm interested in but it's not as if I'm following any one particular look or one particular music type. I mentioned just a moment ago about how I don't tend to follow trends and I find that things that inspire me will change and there's no rhyme or reason. I'll just suddenly find that I'm really into um, a particular artist or a particular thing. It doesn't even need to be something that's created. Uh, I'm working with a label at the moment who musically reference medieval music. So at the moment, I, I, I find that I'm getting quite excited looking at medieval typefaces and uh, the whole heraldry and the Gothic architecture and Gothic detailing. So um, everything from, say, Augustus Pugin um, and uh, like Gothic uh, architectural details, you know, the, the carvings in stone and what have you. Constantly, any reference to science, technology and sci-fi is always going to uh, inspire. Yes, I think it's uh, very important uh, that you um, just brought up technology because a follow-up question was, uh, we don't necessarily need to talk about a cultural music scene or an artist. Is there any technology that maybe you've been experiencing with recently that really inspires you and fascinates you and that you've been using recently on a daily basis? I, I, I do quite a lot of work uh, recently, over the last year or two, I've really gotten into um, photo bashing. So that's taking photographs 
uh, and, and creating compositions. So there was a, an artist out of New York called Nick Neutrons who I would create these imaginary vehicles, spacecraft. And I, I think the first one I did, he, um, he sent me a mood board of what he wanted on the cover. And there were all of these disparate things like Buddha and technology and references to kind of spirituality. And I, I was kind of at odds trying to work out a way of how to bring all of these things together. So I was looking at uh, images of Buddha from various temples like Angkor Wat, and I loved the way that the ancient uh, carvings of Buddha would have aged and where you'd had blocks of stone, this face would be broken with these kind of uh, horizontal and vertical lines of the, the blocks. So I loved the whole look of the Buddha, but I was thinking, well, how do I bring the technology aspect in? So I, I mounted these um, this Buddha's head on a base of uh, like a spacecraft lifting platform. And from that first EP, there's just been this concurrent theme of creating craft out of whatever themology that particular EP was following. So I know that one of them uh, was about waking up so i had a, a a hello kitty alarm clock put some great big rocket boosters on the back and you see it flying through space there was another one which was all about um medication and to do with uh, mental illness so from from a relatively obscure starting point i i, I turned a box of pills into uh, a spacecraft where the pills became these like fly out missiles with photo bashing, um, I've really started to work a lot with Photoshop and in working with Photoshop more, I've been finding various plugins and applications that allow me to fine tune photographs, take a 1000 pixel image, blow it up to 5000 pixel and really kind of retain the detail and bring out as much from that picture as possible. To create something new, completely different out of a photograph, amazing. We will write this on our um, Instagram page, synesthesia under, underscore podcast. Yeah. Please go follow us, check it out also because we will share these new experiments and artworks by Paul Nicholson. At this point, we will have another column, which is called the private collection. Private collection. It's about uh, a record sleeve or music video that has left a mark on you. And I think that you gave an answer already at the very beginning of the interview when you mentioned uh, that uh, Japanese uh, artwork. Mm. Uh, Zig Zig Sputnik, um, the flaunted LP. So this is definitely your ultimate record sleeve, that record sleeve that changed uh, your life overnight. There, there was uh, another one around about the same time age of chance out of leeds the age of chance are, are quite uh significant to me because musically and graphically it was where you had the two elements coming together and it was just so powerful everything that the, the band was saying through their lyrics and through their sound was reflected with the sleeve artwork and from um, a design history point of view, the Age of Chance is significant because it was the first 
major project for Ian Anderson and the Designers Republic. And what I, I think in, just blew me away was how on the sleeve you just had this this wealth of imagery of ideas there are all these quotes and references and the age of chance lp uh, 1000 years of trouble is definitely the other piece of artwork that at that time set me as a 16 year old on on the path that i'm i'm still on it it, it inspired me it wanted me to um work with music and you know music graphics and uh, as you said uh, in a recent interview i think it was with the resident advisor uh, you decided to work in music for the very reason that it's possibly the only field in design in which you work with artists who really allow you to experiment and have fun and do cutting edge work oh well definitely I mean, if you, if you look at projects I've had over the last couple of years, I mean, with, with somebody like Nick Neutrons, there's a label I work for based in London called Revoc. I've probably done almost 20 sleeves for Revoc. And you realize that if it wasn't for labels, if it wasn't for musicians, I, I would really struggle to find an avenue for the way that I work. It, it, it just sits so well with music and in particular electronic music. I think my take on kind of futurism, on, on technology, experimentation, I mean, there wouldn't really be many other avenues. So it, it just sits really well as being uh, graphics for music. Talking about the things that you like, it's now time for our very last um, section of the, mm. the podcast, which is our column. Flavors. Flavors, it's all about uh, your taste. You talked about your taste in design, in music, in comics, in culture in general. Now we would like you to recommend us uh, an Instagram page that you find inspiring and a venue. Now that venues are struggling, like uh, your favorite venue in London, if there is one, that would be good. Well, I did some work for Fold out in um, oh, East London, I can't remember. Yeah, Near... I know Fold, it's an amazing yeah, Canning... venue. Yeah, Canning Town. So I'd, I'd gone to a few nights there. I'd, I'd done a logo for a Sunday session called Unfold. I got to see Marco Kadapana, who's the mover and PCP, Mescalinum United, he played there and, and it was a really great night. What, what I liked about the night is um, it was the first time I've been out for a while where what the, the crowd were wearing was, uh, was exciting because there was definitely um, a, a fashion element to it. I think there was a, a, a probably a um, the, the sort of references the crowd were into, the sort of clothes were wearing, just made it interesting. It, it wasn't just kind of jeans and t-shirts and track pants. So it was good to see people who um, were into to what they were wearing. Yeah, expressing themselves uh, yeah. Uh, through clothes as well and dance moves. <laughs> Like it wasn't fashion, yeah, it wasn't fashion like um, 
big labels. It wasn't about being flashy, but you could see people had put together outfits and it, it kind of reminded me of, um, you know, uh, that era in the 80s, like with Lee Bowery, uh, the New Romantics. It, it reminded me of that where people were obviously cutting clothes up and putting together outfits. And, you know, it, it was great to see that, to see people um, getting creative with fashion and with what they were wearing. So you um, see, we had, uh, we had our local venue and that was like a very, very uh, interesting answer. We can't wait for Fold and all the other clubs in London to reopen because the music industry is uh, struggling now. Uh, synesthesia belongs both to the music industry and the design industry, visual arts. So uh, I think that like also you gave me a good idea because from now on, instead of asking for a general local shop or local spot, we will ask specifically for venue. Anyway, uh, don't worry about writing these uh, recommendations from Paul Nicholson down because uh, you can find uh, his mood board and his uh, flavors card on our Instagram page, synesthesia underscore podcast. Check it out. We will tag him so that you can follow his page as well. I mean, he's much bigger than us, but still. Uh, Paul, it's been a, an incredible uh, like evening with you because uh, this uh, chat was... Uh, really, really fulfilling and interesting and enriching on my side. Uh, I am uh, still, again, extremely grateful that you spent a part of your Sunday here at Synesthesia. So thank you. My pleasure. And uh, I do hope to see you in person at some point after lockdown when we will be able to travel again either at a gig here in London, or if you want to visit Sardinia at some point, I will show you around if I happen to be there. So Paul, thanks a lot once again. Yeah, anytime. And uh, maybe the next episode will be with the Weird Core so that we complete the full circle. You can put us in touch with the Weird Core. I, do you know what, I've yet to meet him. Maybe, um, maybe we can work on something together, it'd be good. Yeah, that will be that will be great. So, bye bye, Paul. Have a nice evening. Thank you. you too. Good night. Ciao. You just listened to Synesthesia, the artist behind the artist. Subscribe to our channel and follow us on Instagram at Synesthesia underscore podcast.